This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is the writer Ava Glass. Ava Glass is the pen name of Christy Doherty. She was born in Texas and worked as a crime reporter before moving to England. Here, Christy was recruited to work in the communications department of the Home Office, tasked with helping the public understand what the intelligence services do to keep us safe. This wasn't a straightforward job, given the secretive world Christy found herself in, but it did prove creatively inspiring. And after selling millions of young adult and crime books, she turned to spy fiction. Ava's protagonist, Emma Makepeace, made her debut in February, pursued by Russian assassins in The Chase. And now she's back with a brand new mission, working undercover on a luxury yacht. Please note, we do dive into Christie's crime reporting career, so there are darker moments. Ava, you've had a fascinating career, so we're going to start at the beginning. Your move into journalism. Can you tell me about that moment? I was 18 years old. I was at university. I started university at 17, so I went a little too early, I suppose, but I finished high school and I knew I wanted to get a degree and I wanted to get on with life. I was ready to be a grown-up, but I didn't know what to do. And one night I saw, quite late, all the president's men Mm. and... I didn't know enough about it. I was too young to know much about the history. I knew a bit. And I watched that film. I watched those men, the two journalists, Woodward and Bernstein, hold the government to account and make a difference 
and stand up against power. And I just thought, oh, I don't know if I can do that, but if I can, that's what I want to do. And um, I changed my area of study without telling my parents. For two years, they didn't know. And I changed universities so that I could go to one that had a good program. And um, that was the beginning. I never looked back. Once I found out I could actually write, which I didn't know until I was already mm -hmm. in the program, because they don't test you to see if you're any good at it. They'll let you in if you're terrible. But once I realized I could do it, I just thought, oh, well, there's nothing else I want to do. Your first reporting job was at the Morning News in Savannah. When you arrived, the crime reporter left, and you were asked if you could handle the job. Did you have any reservations? I mean, they hired me as a general assignment reporter, which is how you usually start covering sort of like quilting bees and, you know, car crashes, whatever they need you to do me on too. the day. Yeah. Exactly the same. It's the standard start, right? Yeah. And I was ready for that. But it took two days to drive from Texas, where I grew up, to Savannah. It's like a 24-hour journey. And by the time I arrived, the crime reporter had resigned. And in that way of newspapers, they just said, we need someone, you're here can you do it? And I said, of course. But I had no idea what it meant. I didn't know what a crime reporter did. I had no idea how it worked. You know, and so did I have reservations? No, I don't think I was smart enough to have reservations. I just thought, brilliant, I've been promoted. <laughs> can you take me back to your first assignment? It would be a challenging start for anyone. But you were a cub reporter in your early 20s and the only woman walking onto a crime scene. Yes, I was the first female crime reporter they'd had, the first full-time. Women had filled in and there were women at the paper, but it was a man's world. Reporters in the States get very close to the police, very close to the crimes. There's not the distance that there is here. There's not the protection. And so on that first day, there was a list of codes, the police talking code, and I was given a police scanner on my first day that just listened to all the police radio stations. This is perfectly normal and perfectly legal in the States. And my first job was to memorize the code. But what I was looking for were five codes. Homicide, shooting, stabbing, assault with a deadly weapon, where there's an injury, dead body. Those were the five things I really looked out for. And so I only had to memorize five codes. Everything else could just flow by me while I listened to that chatter. And on that first day, there was the code came up for a dead body. And... I um, was so young that I asked my editor if I needed to go. <laughs> and he said, of course you need to go. <laughs> it was on the river. They'd found a body in the river. And I, again, had no idea of the concept of what this would mean when I got there. Getting to the river was complicated because it's not a street. So there's a levee. And I had to kind of climb down the levee. I was inappropriately dressed because my mother had dressed me basically for this job. So I was wearing heels mm -hmm. and I was wearing capri length trousers and a little jacket and going down in 90 degree heat through scrubland with rattlesnakes and heaven knows. <laughs> and by the time I got there, I was sweating. And there were two detectives and a couple of uniformed officers standing on the beach, sort of the shore, the muddy shore with the body, but they weren't looking at the body. They literally had a corpse and they were looking at me because I'm stumbling down this hill towards them. <laughs> Like some sort of high school vision of, <laughs> I don't know what, aspiration. And um, yeah, that was the beginning. It was very hot. The body had been in the water a couple of days. And I did what I'd been taught in school to do, in university to do. So I asked the police, can you describe the body? <laughs> and the detective, who would come to be a friend, said, well, it's right here. Why don't you describe it? And that was my first lesson. Well, in addition to that, my God, what did your time as a crime reporter teach you, and why did you decide to leave it behind? Mm. Well, I happened to arrive in Savannah, which is not a big city. It's a population at the time of 250,000, so it's not huge. At the time, 
gang activity ticked up. A Florida gang had moved in. Things went from sleepy to deadly really fast. So I had nights where I raced from crime scene to crime scene. I got really good at it. You know, I was fast. I had a car that could really move. And mm -hmm. I liked to get to the crime scene before the detectives could um, put up the crime tape. They're quite slow with it over there. So if you could get in close enough before the crime tape went up, then I had a chance to interview people. I could interview witnesses. If I had a sympathetic cop on the street, a street cop who knew me, he might give me some information I could use before I got chucked out. Great advantage of being a woman. Well, indeed, actually, I think so. I started out feeling like, oh, I'm at a disadvantage because nobody treats me seriously. But what I learned is not being treated seriously is incredibly valuable if you can use it in your favor. Mm. So I learned a lot about poverty. I learned a lot about violence. I think I grew up. I always say those first three years in Savannah were a master's degree. And then I did it for two more years in a couple of other newspapers. So why did you leave it all behind? There was a day I found myself standing at the site of a mass murder on the Mexican border. It was right across the border with Mexico. And it was just this organized crime, and they had killed, I can't, I can't now remember how many people, and buried their bodies on this location. An awful lot. Yeah, more than 10, less than 25, Oof. I can't say. There were body parts everywhere. I'd never seen anything like it. It was like a horror movie. And I just stood there, and I found myself weeping. And I thought, okay, once you're emotionally unable to disconnect, because that's the first lesson of anything like this, is to disconnect. I lost that ability, and I just felt awful all the time. So I decided it was time to cover something else. You described your move to London as the craziest thing you'd done. You came on the vague offer of a job. Is that right? I I'd say it's more bold than crazy. You're not afraid to start over again? Maybe that's a really lovely way to put it. Um, I think I come from a very conservative family and a very cautious family. So they'd have said it was crazy. <laughs> exactly. All the voices in my ear were saying it was mad. But all my instincts said it was an opportunity. I'd done a lot of work for a British publishing house called Time Out while I was in America. Mm -hmm. and We got, know it well. Exactly. Lovely place, great people, interesting reporting. And... Um, they offered me a job, but they said they couldn't get me a visa, so I'd have to get my own visa. I didn't know anything about that stuff. I called the British Embassy in Los Angeles, which was the closest one to where I lived. It was about 2,500 miles away from me, and um, spoke to a marvelous woman whose name I wish I had because I'd sent her flowers every year, mm. and said, is there any sort of visa for freelance writing, journalism, editing? And she said, I have absolutely no idea. Like, give me a second. Disappeared, came back and said, do you know what there is? And she sent me the information. She really did. It cost 86 pounds back then in 2000. I think it would cost you so much more than that now to apply. You don't know if you'll be accepted or rejected. They accepted me. And um, three months later, I was living in Hackney and working for Time Out. And so I would say, looking back, in retrospect, it was bold. At the time, it was mad. You're a great raconteur. <laughs> <laughs> After five years in publishing, you became a civil servant, but you didn't pursue this role. You were headhunted. Tell me about the phone call that led to you working in Westminster. I worked at Time Out for five years. And then as happened around then, so this would be around 2005, it sort of ran out of money. <laughs> and that is a thing that happens in independent publishing all the time. It went through a really tough patch. And also I was at a crossroads. I was in my sort of mid to late 30s. I was trying to decide what to do next. Did I want to continue this? You know, sort of bobbing from job to job. What did I want to do? Did I want to be an editor? Did I want to be a writer? And in that moment, a woman I had met 
I think once or twice while I worked at Time Out, called me. I didn't even know she had my number. And she said she'd taken a job working for the government. And she was looking for somebody who could write about counterterrorism, not get scared. And she thought of me because she knew about my background as a crime reporter. And it felt so serendipitous, so extraordinary that I said yes. But looking back, when I, now knowing what I know about the job, I've always wondered if it was a coincidence. Uh, that is intriguing, isn't it? Yeah. No way of asking that. No, no, I wouldn't either, because that's the thing about that world is you don't. Now that's the, one, the other thing I've learned is you never ask. You were employed at the Home Office in the Communications Department with a focus on counterterrorism. Does this mean that your work related to the security service, MI5? Well, the Home Office, the Home Secretary has oversight of MI5 and counterterrorism. There are multiple security units, more than people know about. It's not just MI5 and MI6. There's there's multiple. Shh, don't tell us too much. <laughs> don't tell us too much. <laughs> They're all interconnected. And so, to be perfectly honest, I don't know. I never knew who I was working with was MI5 and who was not, who was from another counterterrorism, you know, security group. Did you have to sign a official secret? Mm, yes, of course. I mean, they told me on the first day, consider yourself officially signed. It's not mm. even really a piece of paper anymore. It just is, if you take this job, you are. But from America, were you safe? Well, that's the question. I don't think they did trust me. It took them a really long time to trust me. At first... I think they probably thought, because I had, I was headhunted, as you say, but she didn't know me before. And they couldn't do proper top secret clearance of me because that takes years and they needed somebody immediately. So I was security cleared to the second highest level. There are multiple levels and I was security cleared just below top secret. And what that entails, I have no idea. It took six weeks and they gave me my badge and I thought it was all over. And then... Almost as soon as I started, I was in the little kitchen at the home office on my floor, and I met this young woman in her 20s. She said it was her first day. She said she worked in legal, and she asked me where things were. Can anybody use this cup? You know, are these, where are the teaspoons? And we had one of those conversations. And then a couple of days later, she was on my bus that I took every day from Waterloo to Horse Ferry Road. And then a few days after that, she was in my favorite coffee shop. We just kept running into each other. And so we became office friends in that way. And she was very interested in my life, my history, in that way people are. Where did you live? What did your family do? What brought you over here? Just the normal questions, but perhaps more follow-up. And again, because I had never been in that world, it never occurred to me she was anything but interested. And then she disappeared after two and a half weeks. Her email was gone. Her phone number didn't work. She was just gone. I never saw her again. And it took me months to realize that that was the end of my background check that that was how they do it, in person, becoming your friend, asking you the questions. And then you never see her again. I never heard from her again. I dedicated my first book to her. Amazing. Yeah. By name? Uh, no, initials. <laughs> <laughs> or the initials she used. Did you um, base your character, Emma Makepeace, on this woman? Very much. I don't think until I met her... I'd known there were spies who were young women. Like, it just never occurred to me. No, no, nobody thinks of that. I get asked it all the time. Is this feasible that somebody in their 20s, a woman in particular in her 20s, could be a spy? And I always say the first spy I ever met was a woman in her 20s. Of course it's possible. Of course it happens. But I thought about her. You know, I met her in 2005, 2006. And I didn't write my book until 
two years ago. And so I thought about her all those years. Every so often she'd just pop in my head. What's she doing now? Is she with MI6? So she was very vividly with you for a very oh, long time. She deceived me completely. She played me like a drum. I felt like <laughs> an idiot. And I thought I was so smart. And that's what really fascinated me about her is how coolly, calmly deceptive she was. The very fact of being a spy is a state secret. Did you spend the whole time talking in code with false names and euphemistic job titles? Sort of. Yeah, mm. I would say I didn't. Everybody knew everything about me. They knew how much was on my credit card. They knew how much was in my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> they knew everything, but I didn't know. But you were I, attracted to all this. I found it fascinating. I didn't want to do it. Was it the novelist in you that was hungry for material? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, or maybe... I don't know. This I took this job right after the London Underground bombings. So... We were all in this heightened state of anxiety, I think, as a nation. I wouldn't take the tube. I was frightened of it. I took everything but. I walked everywhere. I was incredibly fit. I should still do that. <laughs> it was In that way, it was good for me. But I did it out of fear. And I was meeting people whose job it literally was to make sure that didn't happen again. And working with them, I had... A lot of respect for them. Once I understood, once they let me see what they were doing and who they were, then I realized that actually this is a different world than I expected. Hmm. It's not John le Carré and it is not James Bond. It is something else entirely. These are good people doing a really dangerous, hard job. But it sounds to me as if it was a bit of a handbrake turn, that they were actually moving towards transparency, which was almost a banned word. Yes. <laughs> uh, or was it simply that the secret services recognised that they had an image problem? Mm, both, I think. I think the Home Secretary knew they had an image problem. Mm. My job was created by the Home Secretary. This was his, this was John Reed's job. Basically, mm. this was his plan, that they should tell the public that the public was frightened and that they needed to understand what was being done, mm -hmm. what was the actions that were being taken. And that was my job. I was going to talk to the spies, see what they were doing, and then tell the public directly bypassing the press, who at the time I think they saw as antagonistic. So tell the public directly, here's the good things we're doing. But the spies would have none of it. They wouldn't let me tell anybody anything. And I kept those really good secrets through the time when it really would have helped. And I just had long meetings all day with spies where we argued about Facebook and websites and whether they should talk. What kind of stories did you write? Were they phony or were they factual? Oh, no. Everything that I worked on, as far as I know, to the best of my knowledge, was real. And it was it, these, were, these were big projects. So these were huge government endeavors. There was a project called Prevent, which was huge at the time. It was the thing everybody was working on. And you see it. You still see it everywhere. So mm. Prevent involved counterterrorism officials, experts thinking like a terrorist all day long. So just basically looking for places to blow up. Where are the weaknesses? Where are the flaws? Where are people vulnerable? And then I watched the bollards go up, the protections go up, the cameras go up, the walls go up. I could see it. I could see it on my way to the train station. I could see the result of their actions. And we can see the results of their actions in our daily lives and the fact that I just got off a crowded tube, mm. you know, and came here without the slightest hint of fear. So that's what I was trying to get them to talk about. But in terms of what I actually wrote about, it was precious little because they wouldn't let me. You've spoken of a disproportionate relationship. The intelligence operatives knew everything about you, but couldn't tell you the complete truth. How hard did this make your job? 
Yes, I think it reminded me a bit of my relationship with the detectives on that first newspaper job and that these people could see through me. Detectives, the thing about detectives is they know when you're lying. They know what you're not saying. They're so good at seeing through people. And these guys were the same. After a few months, I think it took them maybe a year, really, to fully trust me. After that... Then they would tell me little things so that I could understand why they didn't want to talk about this stuff to the public, why they valued secrecy so much. They wouldn't have a Facebook account because what goes out can come in. If you open a door, someone might walk through it. They didn't want an email for people to like drop them information. Again, for the same reason, phishing, hacking, ways to be reached. Like everything, their whole obsession is with protecting the machinery of intelligence. But what deprivation, particularly if you were a journalist like you? Well... It was a huge adjustment to get used to not saying things. That was the biggest, to not telling people. And I channeled all that energy just into learning, into listening and remembering. You're listening to Snowcast with me, Jon Snow, and we'll be right back after this. 
A lot of things that were secret then aren't secret now. So that is part of it. I'm very careful to write outside of what I did. So at the time, my contacts were in counterterrorism, which was focused on a particular Mm. kind of terrorism. So the terrorism at the time, you know, based around Middle Eastern upheaval, rather than what I write about, which is Russia. And Russia's entirely separate from what I worked on. So I feel like I'm quite safe to delve into that territory. When you first pitched your spy series, your agent warned you that it was a tricky area. Is spy fiction a world of men, writing for men? And did you consciously want to challenge that? It is, in fact, a world of men, writing for men. (laughs) Yes, it is. But did you want to penetrate it? I think when I wrote, when I came up with the idea, I didn't know. Mm. I didn't know this was true because there are so many television series and Mm. movies about female spies Mm. and women in that world. But there are vanishingly few books. And... I don't know what I thought. Often when there's no books, you kind of think, well, maybe nobody's thought of this. That's your first ludicrous thought. And then I thought, well, there have been such huge TV series about this. Very recently, Killing Eve had just happened and it had been Mm -hmm. enormous. So that door needs, surely it must open. And also, you know, forgive my French, but screw the door. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to write this. This is a good story. Why aren't there more books about female spies? Why is this not allowed? Who decided that? So... I would say, in my experience, since writing it, what I've found is I'm allowed to write spy fiction, but I'm not allowed to be taken as seriously as a man writing spy fiction. And that is extremely galling. And I see that a lot at literary festivals. I see it in how I'm covered as a writer and how my background is covered. Everybody tries to make it lighter. Is that a situation which has not really changed since you started writing? I mean, have more women come into this field or are you still more or less on your own? I think they're coming. I think if I do okay, if this book sells, then that gives publishing what it wants, which is this invitation Hmm. to let women do this, to publish more books. So in some ways, and I'm not saying this at all lightly or arrogantly, I feel like infuriated that this is the case, but I believe it, especially after what happened a couple of weeks ago when I did an event at Cheltenham with two men who'd written a book, a nonfiction book about spying. And we were talking about the psychology of spying. And the Times wrote an article about it. Only they left me out of it completely. They wrote only what the two men said. It's as if I wasn't there. And when my PR asked the writer why I was left out of it, he said, because she didn't say anything interesting. And I had told her before she spoke to him that was what he would say, because that is where they hide. And that, to me... It just shows you what we're up against as women. I can't imagine it happening to a man on a panel. If there were three men on that panel, three men would have been quoted. James Bond turned 70 in April. How well do you think he has aged? I think James Bond has aged quite well, actually, Mm. if you look at the modern James Bond. I think the old James Bond, well, it's of its time. The first James Bond novel, Casino Royale, That is the one true spy novel, I think, Ian Fleming wrote. That's the one where he's a real spy, where he's spying and you feel that book. You feel the knowledge in that book. There's a bomb explosion in it that I think is one of the best described, most visceral scenes of a bombing that I can imagine. Fleming went through it. Fleming was bombed in World War II. He'd experienced it and he obviously was traumatized by it. But after that, I think he drank too much. He wrote too fast. He didn't really care. We had giant attacking squid and characters named Pussy Galore. It just got daft and it turned into something mad. So that doesn't hold up at all. But the idea of James Bond as a character, as a brave, determined, suave, 
aspirational person. We love that. It's not realistic. People are hungry for it, but actually the real thing isn't like that anyway. No, the real thing is much grittier, much more ordinary. I always say, the problem with James Bond, of course, is that he's too beautiful. You know, you want a spy to melt into a crowd. The only crowd he could melt into is at the Metropolitan Ball in New York. Everywhere else, everybody's going to look at him and say, look at that guy. I wonder (laughs) if he's a spy, which is literally what you don't want. (laughs) Is it time for a female Bond on the screen, or are you happy for there to be other spies and better representation through work like your own. I've thought about this a lot because I I just think James Bond is James Bond. He exists. He's real. We know him. We can see him. We don't need him to change into Can't a woman. Can't we have a Janet Bond? There's something absurd about that <laughs> <laughs> to me. I think we've had some fascinating spies, female spies on television and in film. And I think there will be more fascinating spies in books as time goes on who are women. And they can be themselves. They can be their own selves. There's nothing believable to me about the Dr. No James Bond simply being a woman because a woman wouldn't do those things. She wouldn't act in that way. So then you've got to change the whole book. Tell me about Emma Makepeace and the agency where she works. Presumably, it is fictional. Well... (laughs) <laughs> Steady. <laughs> Another element of the Official Secrets Act goes crashing to the floor. I think I can say very honestly that I don't know if it's real or not. It seems logical to me that it would exist. I did an event, uh, I guess about six months ago, and talked about the agency. And afterwards, a man came up to me who I'd never seen before. He gave me a series of numbers and letters like G75938. And he says, that's the agency you wrote about. I can't remember the numbers and letters. And then he walked away. He said, it's real. And then he walked away. And then two weeks ago, I was talking to a former spy quite high up at MI6. And he said, no, it's not real at all. I've never heard of such a thing. I would know. So who are you going to believe? Well, who are you going to believe? Believe me. I think it must (laughs) exist. (laughs) Emma is capable but vulnerable. She doesn't like to lie. Was it important to humanize your spy for her to be fallible? I would say, I don't think she minds lying all the time. I think from her perspective, there's a line in The Traitor, the second book in the series, where her boss says to her, you're a spy with a conscience, and that's the worst thing that can happen. I think that's her problem. She doesn't mind lying, especially if she's lying to the kinds of people she normally interacts with. But she does care too much about the consequences of her work. The first Emma Makepeace book, The Chase, was partly inspired by a CCTV camera that followed you while walking in London. It posed a question that shapes the action. Can you tell me about it? So I hadn't lived in London very long. I was walking down a street in Walthamstow, and it happened to be quite quiet. I think it was a Sunday. And so there were only a couple of people on Walthamstow High Street, for whatever reason, I was out quite early. And there are cameras on extremely high poles, and I'd never really noticed them before. But I just happened to glance up because it was moving. The camera was turning, angling down the street until it was pointing at me. And then I walked, and it made me quite uncomfortable. And as I walked down the street, I kept glancing up, and I realized it was still following me until I turned the corner. And I just kept thinking, is someone operating that, or is it automatic? Who's going to look at that footage, and what's the point of it? And after that, I noticed cameras more. I was more aware of them. Now I don't look at them anymore at all, really, to be honest. Again, you can't really go around constantly looking up to see. But there are these little tiny passages I went down recently. They're in the book. They're in the chase. Emma runs down one of them to get to the river. And they go between Fleet Street and the Thames. There's nothing on them. There's no doors on them. They're just old pedestrian ways through. 
There's cameras in them. Why? <laughs> That's the bit I don't understand. Your second book, The Traitor, sees Emma undercover on a luxury yacht. Did you watch Below Deck like many others during lockdown? Or am I making an assumption here and it's just because Russian oligarchs like a luxury yacht? I would say a little bit of both is fair. <laughs> it was really inspired by a trip I had to Antibes before mm. the pandemic, before the world went mad, before Salisbury, where I sat on the edge of the harbour watching these yachts, these extraordinary, not just a few yachts, dozens, maybe hundreds mm. of yachts, and some were as big as cruise ships. They were so vast that at first I didn't think they could possibly be yachts. It's the first time I saw a super yacht. Mm. And then we all learned about them as the years went by, who uses them, why they exist. And I started thinking about how if you had a ship like that with a helipad and virtually a tiny town of your own, you're sort of stateless. You can move from country to country without interference. You can be anywhere one day and somewhere else the next. And how handy would that be for a criminal? How handy must that be for oligarchs? But then how on earth do you get close to them in order to understand what they're doing? So it seemed to me going undercover on one of those yachts would be almost the only way to ever get close to some of those people. Is it more fun inventing all this than living it? Oh, I'd hmm. much rather invent it ah. than live it. I think... I mean, the spies I've met, the ones who I think were honest with me, very much liked their work. Like, they were where they wanted to be. They fought hard for that job, and they believed in their work. But I just don't think I could do it. I, I don't think I'm deceptive enough. I don't think I'm capable of lying like that. And I get too cross, and the truth would come out, and then there'd just be, there'd be nothing. So I don't think it's for me. I, I must confess I was approached um, at exactly the same time as I became a television reporter and I couldn't think of anything worse. Imagine, you know, you're going to be seen on the telly every night and you've signed up to spy for the British government. Do you feel safer or less safe as a result of your time learning about our intelligence services and what they get up to? Oh, much safer. Much really? safer. And everybody should. Everybody should. I've watched them work. And what I've seen and what we've all seen in the last 20 years is a change in how everything works in terms of basically the security of us, of civilians, just going about our normal life. And what they've done to make us safer is quite extraordinary. I cannot think of another country that has done what they've done. I don't think you would see this in France. I don't think you'd see this in Germany, although they work together and they, they, they help each other out. The focus of intelligence in this country on preventing terrorism and making things unfriendly to terrorism, making our landmarks unfriendly, our lives unfriendly to them, our airports unfriendly to them, our tube stations unfriendly to them, is extraordinary. This country has changed in ways I'm not sure people recognize in 20 years. It's different in terms of how things look, how bridges look, how train stations look. They physically changed it. And it's yeah, I take the tube all the time now. The Five Eyes intelligence chiefs met in California last week, and Ken McCullum, Director General of MI5, spoke about the espionage threat posed by China. Was this a step towards openness? I really like him. He gives speeches all the time. He gives interviews all the time. And he talks in a way where he reveals a little, a little tiny bit of what they're actually 
Well, I mean, he's revealing what he wants us to think about. He's revealing what he wants us to know. So he's not telling us everything, but there's truth in there. And I read every article <laughs> with him in it voraciously because what you look for when somebody in spying talks is what they're not saying. That's always the bit, the bits that they avoid, the bits they gloss over. It's not openness. There will never be openness, but there are hints. And it's what I was trying to do. He's doing it. He's doing it. He's reaching out. He's demystifying it a little bit. He's saying, we're here. We're working on this. And that makes me so happy. My good Lord, it took 15 years for them to get there, but they got there. And I'm glad he's doing it. China has become a massive subject. Oh, absolutely. No, it has and it should be. It's fascinating. It's an area I think we're going to spend a lot of time learning about. In my watch, it wasn't a thing. They, we were good allies. We trusted each other back then. Do you think that there's more work to be done in making our intelligence services more accountable? Or do you think they've gone as far as they can? That one's really hard because the whole ethos, the whole point of intelligence is that they don't tell us stuff. That's the whole point. That's the thing, the one thing they kept trying to teach me is we can't tell you because otherwise we lose everything. Our whole point is secrecy. So I would say no. I think intelligence has to stay completely secret aside from these projects they work on, which can be revealed, and also their concerns. If they tell you they're concerned about something, believe it, because they're telling it to you for a reason, not as a message to that country, as a message to you. This is coming. Be ready. We're talking amid a terrible crisis in the Middle East, in which one presumes that some of your erstwhile colleagues are very busy indeed. Because although the violence is happening far away, the impact could be very, very serious on us. I would say what's happening right now is mm. role-playing, gaming out the various things that could happen. This goes on all the time. I know people who do it. Looking at the different ways this could go. The gaming out of international activity and the impact that will have on our country is the most fascinating thing I think I've ever seen because they take it very seriously. These are huge, huge endeavors, but they can't control it. There's no control. They're just getting ready. What do you think's next for Emma McPeace? Because, well, we're now possibly inspired to enter the world of Chinese espionage. It's funny you would say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing... I the... didn't know. I mean, that's not a strange question. I know, but... Every novel I write is inspired by the news. So The Chase was inspired by these attacks on Russian spies and the Skripal attempted assassination. Because the thing about the Skripal attempted assassination in Salisbury that fascinated me, aside from the fact that it was virtually an act of war on British soil using a nerve agent... Just remind them what happened. So a former Russian spy who was under the protection of the British government, he was basically a dissident and hidden away in the leafy town of Salisbury. Russian spies tried to kill him using a nerve agent called Novichok, which they painted on his doorknob. They also dropped a bottle containing Novichok in a park in the town, which later did kill a person who happened to pick it up. So it was careless, it was sloppy, it was incredibly dangerous, it could have killed thousands of people. So that happened. But the, one of the things that fascinated me about that was his daughter, who was a grown woman who had nothing to do with his world, but nearly got killed. And in that moment, she nearly died because of her father's past. And I wanted to look at what it would be like 
to be that person, to be that adult out of that world of spying, caught up in spying. So that was the chase. And the traitor was loosely inspired by an MI6 analyst named Gareth Williams, whose body was found folded inside a suitcase in his London flat, padlocked from the outside, and the police said it was suicide. And I wanted to look at what might have really happened, because, again, we'll never know what really Mm. happened. And my new novel, the one I'm working on now, which is working title, The Trap, is looking at a G7 coming to Edinburgh, and there's a threat to disrupt it with a possible assassination. They know that's coming. They can sense it. They can hear it. But they don't know whether it's Russia or China or someone else that's planning to do it, and they have seven days to figure out and stop it. And so... As you can see, China's in there a little, at least. I'm opening that door. I'm looking at it. Because China and Russia now, there's a connection that is quite quite strong. It's very interesting talking to you because I speak as an older person who was around at the time people beginning to explore the atomic bomb and all the rest of it and in the aftermath of, of its usage. And you're now in a new age. But it feels, from everything you've said while we've been talking, a very dangerous time. Mm. When was it not dangerous? <laughs> That's my question. I mean... That sounds a very MI5 answer. But anybody who reads history, you know, you pick a year, any year, and just read a book about that year, and it always feels like the most apocalyptic year. We live in a very dangerous world. There's a lot of things that divide us. And these things probably, I don't think it's more dangerous this year than it was three years ago, or certainly not more dangerous than it was 10 years ago. And certainly not more dangerous than 1967, which is a truly horrific year. So if you pluck a year, I would say it's dangerous, but nobody needs to be deeply fearful. We should all be careful how hard you read the news, how much news you absorb. Hug your kids, go on about your life, do good things. Odds are we're all going to be fine. Ava Glass, thank you for a really fascinating conversation. Thank you. That was the author Ava Glass. The latest book in the Alias Emma series is called The Traitor, and you'll find a link to that and her other books in the episode description. I'm Jon Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. Please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.